Thanks be to God for your presence together in this place. This past Wednesday night, we gathered for Ash Wednesday service in Lee Chapel. It was a remarkable time together. It was remarkable because it marks for us the beginning of Lent, that time in which we are called to a season of reflection, perhaps to a season of lament. It is a time that reminds us when we have the ashes imposed on our foreheads of our true condition. I can't tell you what a sacred moment it is for a pastor to mark someone's forehead with the sign of the cross in ashes. But that cross, along with the words spoken, remind us how temporary and yet how divinely empowered life is. For the words of the pastor are usually something like, you came from dust and you will return to dust. And you leave that place of worship marked in that way. I got up the next morning, showered, shaved, looked in the mirror and there was still a mark on my forehead. Some of you say, well, why didn't you clean it off the night before? What, are you just, some of y'all need to relax. <laughs> I wanted it to last as long as it could. And by morning it had become a smudge. But it reminded me not just of my own temporariness, if Brad can make up words, so can I, <laughs> of the briefness of this existence that we claim and we embrace and that we try to own as if we have control over it when we really don't. And I was reminded that I came from dust and I will return to dust. And I was reminded that death exists in the world because sin entered the world. And that death, according to Paul in Romans, is a reminder that sin continues to exist because death continues to exist. I hope you welcomed the three long passages this morning. I hope you noticed the thread that runs through all three of them. Psalm 32, Matthew chapter 4, 
Romans chapter 5. The thread that runs through all three of them is the condition of sin and the divine antidote to that sin. It is the condition of sin. And when I say sin, I mean the condition of sin. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. I heard a lot more about sinning than I heard about the condition of sin. I heard a lot more about the litmus test list of sins that seemed to be important to whoever was my pastor in a particular season than I did the condition of sin. I see a lot of you nodding your heads. But what these passages remind me of is that we need to pay attention to the condition of sin. Because if you could read the breadth of Romans, and we won't take time to do that this morning, the breadth of Romans, and if we could understand the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and if we can grasp the depth of the meaning and conversation of the writer of Psalms 32 describing their own experience with sin, it might help us to recognize that it's the condition of sin that gives rise to the acts of sin. And that if we only deal with the acts of sin, we're only dealing with the symptoms and not the cause of the symptoms. And so it is my prayer that in this season of Lent, as we gather and as we reflect, and it's the reason we've moved the altar time to the end of the service, because we want to encourage you to reflect. And we want to encourage you to respond to the word. And however it may speak to you, You see, the condition of sin is that which has changed the structures of the world. The condition of sin is that which has changed reality in the world. It is the condition of sin that is the root of all of the things that we care about. Injustice, slavery, racism, Economic disparity, those are real structures that have been reshaped by the condition of sin in ways that are counter to the kingdom of God. Those of you who align yourself with the Church of the Nazarene, let me call you to our heritage. This church was the second church that Phineas Brzee started Los Angeles first church being the first, but I would call you back to our heritage, which was Phineas Brzee's desire to change the structures of sin. Because people were being marginalized and disenfranchised by those structures of sin, because the condition of sin, the condition of death exists, and it existed, and he left another denomination to preach where? Skid Row, Los Angeles. 
title of the message is t- today is Life in a Redemptive Church. Could I suggest to you that a redemptive church cares as much about the condition of sin as it does about the lists of sin? In our theology in the Church of the Nazarene, it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. And a redemptive church seeks to be redemptive in the structures of reality that promote disenfranchisement as much as it seeks to redeem people from the acts of sin. So I would say to you, those of you who say, I shouldn't say it that way, let me back up, rewind. Not those of you. But it is common for me every once in a while to read in some forms of literature that the church no longer talks about sin. Well, friends, when the church speaks of injustice and racism and slavery and abuse, and trauma, it's talking about sin. So I hope you don't come to me and say, nobody preaches about sin anymore, Paz and We've been preaching about sin, friends. Our challenge is that we've gotten so caught up in the American evangelical tradition of give me a list so I can work on my list. The problem with creating a list and thinking of sin as things we only do and things we need to stop doing is that puts all of the effort upon you. Because then you say, all I have to do is stop doing this and I'm righteous again. That's not gospel, that's actually heresy. It's theologically inadequate because it is only the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that delivers us from sin and can redeem us from the condition of sin and energize us to redeem the structures of reality that give rise to all of those lists of sin. Oh, preacher, but it's easier just to have a list. Yes, it is, because a list allows us to avoid the real heart of the matter, which is the heart. And so the psalmist writes, blessed is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. A better translation actually is, happy is the person whose transgressions are forgiven. And I hope you listened as that psalm was read because there's a change of voice in that psalm. There's sort of a back and forth in that psalm. Because it also says, stubborn is the mule. Now, you know, you can just hide from that if you want and say it's simply a metaphor and it's not about you, it's about the person sitting next to you. (laughs) But to be stubborn like a mule, to resist the voice of God in one's life, 
is to embrace that stubbornness, that resistance. And could I suggest to us this morning that the stubbornness isn't just stubbornness against recognizing sinning, but it's stubbornness against recognizing the condition of sin. And so part of my prayer for us in this season of Lent is, oh God, as we stop and reflect, let us embrace all of our understanding of sin. That which creates trauma on people, that which abuses people, that which creates hurt and pain. And could we recognize in that when we sang that song this morning, lay down your addictions and lay down. That while forgiveness comes instantaneously, relief may take time. It may take time. If you've been abused and traumatized, it may take time. If you've been addicted, it may take time. And the mercy of God understands that. Matthew chapter 4 is the story of the temptation of Jesus. And we need to put that into context because the temptation of Jesus comes after a high point in Jesus' life. It comes after his baptism. And he goes into the desert to fast. And in the ancient traditions, it was believed that the demons lived in the deserts. Now, I lived in Arizona for about 20 years, and I can testify that yes, they do. <laughs> when my wife and I were dating, she was born in Blythe raised in India, and I made the mistake of saying, why would anyone ever want to live in the desert? And God said, go, young man. And so Jesus goes into the desert and he fasts, and here comes Satan to tempt Jesus three times. And the temptations that Jesus encountered from Satan are the same temptations we encountered. They're the temptations of self and self-preservation and self-interest. And we need to recognize that submitting ourselves to the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ that will not ever relieve us of temptation. William Barclay reminds us that Jesus was tempted again. Remember when Peter tried to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross and Jesus said, what? Satan, get thee behind me. Jesus was recognizing the temptation. And in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, and Jesus said to his father, 
let this cup pass from me. That's temptation. So let's not mistake temptation as sin. As long as you and I live in the condition of this world and the sinfulness of humanity, temptation will exist. And temptation is not necessarily the invitation to sin. It's the opportunity to reaffirm the grace and mercy of God. It's the opportunity to affirm that God is present, God is at work, and God is with us. Boy, that's the way and manner in which Jesus dealt with the temptation. So life in a redemptive church has a recognition of both sin and sinning and equally seeks to redeem from both. They are not exclusive. They are not either or. See, a redemptive church is called to redeem its community and its people and be participants in that and to hold them together as divine. Redemptive church understands that they are participants with God in the kingdom of God because when we read Jesus' call for the kingdom of God to be on earth, that is the call to have those structures of reality redeemed so that they reflect God's intention, original intention for the Garden of Eden. And so we are called to be participants and there is a divine participation in the rendering of the human condition of sin through the antidote of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes both. In chapter five in the passage that was read, he recognized the condition of sin but later in Romans, he goes on to ask the question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And what is his response? By no means. By no means. And finally, life in a redemptive church celebrates. Celebrates celebrates the great mercy of God that invites us to places of prayer and reflection. For when someone seeks to follow Jesus, I want to suggest to you that there are many ways that a person can come to follow Jesus. They may come to an altar. They may. Someone came to me this week and said, I listened to you Sunday and sounded like you were mad about something. 
We have a long history in the Church of the Nazarene of inviting people to the altar. I grew up going to the altar. For me, it became a place and a sign of failure. Because every time I came to church, the preacher was telling me how miserable a sinner I was. And I went back and forth, carrying the shame and guilt that I couldn't seem to get ahead and make progress. And I've heard similar stories. For some of you, the altar was a place of victory because that's where you found Jesus. But can I just say to you, it's not the only place to find Jesus. It's not the only place. And so every Sunday morning, we have an altar opening where we invite people to come to be anointed for healing. Whatever that healing looks like in someone's life. We invite people to come and pray for whatever's taking place in their life and some of them come here. Or we invite you to pray where you are. During Lent, my prayer is that we will use these altars at the end of the service to reflect and say, oh God, am I participating in the structures of reality that reflect the condition of sin? Come on, brother. Come and sit there, brother. Hey, how are you doing? You're welcome. The opportunity to reflect during Lent, to reflect on one's condition. For you and I live in a world full of the human condition of sin. And the more we're aware of it, the more we participate in the redemption of it, there is hope in the world. For we are the people of God. And you may know someone who has been thinking of following Jesus. You may know someone that you've been talking to about following Jesus. You may have someone who's asking you questions about following Jesus. Continue that conversation and invite them to follow Jesus or invite them to come here. But I have endeavored in 45 years of ministry to not let these altars be places of shame. But to have them be places of grace and mercy and victory and hope and redemption. You see, life in a redemptive church says there are many ways for someone to come to Jesus. And you may be the key to that happening. Don't wait for me to open an altar. Do the work of God where the work of God takes you. You see, as I said last week, if you wait 
only for an altar call, I believe that to be heresy. That's a strong word. That's a really strong word. But it's theologically inaccurate to claim that's the only place. I would suggest to you that if we're to be a redemptive church that you invite all your friends to come and say, hey, I go to redemptive church, you're going to meet some people who love God and they'll just live before you in ways that you'll find to be remarkable. Most people come to Jesus by knowing somebody who lives it out in front of them. More than listening to five verses of just as I am. I was a high school senior sitting right over here in the sanctuary in Redlands. We had two sections of seating. And I was about four rows from the back. And there was an altar call taking place. And I was typically adolescent. I was standing on the edge of the pew, leaning against the end of the pew, half in and half out of the aisle. And I was thinking, when will this be over? Anyone else want to confess? But a gentleman came, an older gentleman, and said to me, are you wanting to go pray? And I wasn't, but the reason I tell you that story is he cared enough about a young man to go ask. Because if I had been, he would have gone with me. That's life in a redemptive church. So during this season of Lent, I invite us to reflect on the condition of humanity that's, that takes people hostage. That lets us take people hostage. Can I just, one more suggestion here. Oh, it's only 1023, I got 10 more minutes. You see, the condition of sin isn't an out there issue. The condition of sin is not just out there. The condition of sin is in here too. I, I, I hope that woke some of you up. I'm not suggesting you all are sinful. I'm suggesting that because you and I are going to return to dust. We carry the mark of that condition. It's redeemed, hopefully. And maybe it isn't, but if we participate in ways and in practices and in language that seek to keep people in systems of reality 
that keep people in bondage in systems of racism and poverty and those structures of reality in the world, then we're participating in the condition of sin. Let's reflect on that. Let's lament that that exists. For us to have integrity in the community, we have to be caring about both the condition of sin and the acts of sin. We can't choose between them. Well, that's life in a redemptive church. We're going to sing a prayer chorus, and I would invite you to come and pray. If you want to be anointed for healing, you can come here on this side. If you want to pray and reflect, you can come on this side. You can actually come to either side if you like. But I invite you to come and pray while we sing.